This is Your Partners in Pain, a podcast that aims to bring together those who live with pain, healthcare providers who treat chronic pain, and researchers working on topics that affect people living with pain. This podcast is a must-listen for anyone experiencing pain or anyone trying to help those who live with it. Your Partners in Pain is presented by the Saskatchewan Pain Society, also known as SAS Pain, and I am your host, Alexandria. Each episode, we are going to speak to Saskatchewan-based healthcare providers and researchers who have information and education to share about pain science and pain care. We are also going to speak with everyday people as they share their incredible stories of living with pain and the techniques they've used to help manage it and live well. It is important to note that the information presented in this podcast represents the opinions of the host and the guests that appear on the show and not that of SAS Pain. The content presented should not be taken as direct health care advice, but for informational purposes only. Because each individual is unique, please consult your healthcare provider for any questions or concerns you have, or before you incorporate any of the ideas presented in this podcast into your own treatment plan. For episode 19, we are speaking with Dr. Michelle Gannel. Michelle holds a PhD in clinical psychology and is a registered doctoral psychologist. She is also a researcher and associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Health Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. Here, Michelle runs the Family Health Lab, which she is going to tell us all about. Further, Michelle will provide some important information on the different experience that perhaps children or youth have with pain, the importance of menstrual pain, pain across the life course, and the importance of the social experience of pain. We hope you enjoy. As I detailed in the introduction, Michelle is a clinical psychologist, meaning that she meets and provides psychological assessments and therapy for individuals, but she is also a pain researcher who focuses on the social and psychological elements that can affect someone's experience of living with pain, especially in the context of family. Michelle, will you tell us a little bit more about your background or training that led you to be interested in pain research? Sure. So um, like you said, I'm a clinical psychologist. So I did my bachelor's degree at the University of Ottawa. And there I um, had this one course where I had to go into a care home uh, with seniors and I saw all all of the pain that they were experiencing. So that was really when I first was in, got my first piqued my interest in pain. So when I went on to apply to graduate school, um, I went to the University of Regina and studied under the supervision of Dr. Thomas Hadjastavropoulos, who um, does research on pain in older adults. And um, my master's was on pain in older adults. And that was super fascinating and really cemented my interest in going on to pursue a career in research in pain. Um, but I wasn't as as closely interested in the area of older adults and found that I was more interested in families, social relationships and couples. So my Ph.D. was on couples relationships and pain. Um, and 
as part of my PhD training, I was still um, doing clinical practice and training in to become a clinical psychologist. So some of that involved going into tertiary rehabilitation centers and doing placements with individuals who were experiencing a significant amount of pain. And I did uh, my one-year residency for clinical psychology at the hospital for sick children, where um, I worked with families and teens and kids, which is really the population I'm most interested in. And one of my rotations was uh, in the pain clinic, and it was a research rotation there. So there's been a few different pieces here and there that have really come together um, to cement my interest in pain and doing pain research. That's super fascinating. I like how you've kind of gone across the entire lifespan looking at pain, which just makes your knowledge that much more valuable. And that family and social support component um, is so important and definitely something we've discussed with other podcast guests, but it's great to have an expert like you here to tell us more about that. But now that you're based at the University of Saskatchewan, you actually run something called the Family Health Lab, which has quite a big focus on pain research. Will you tell us a little bit about the lab and some of the activities happening there? Sure. So my interest in pain uh, is really when you think about pain, you've probably talked about this in other episodes, but pain is a biopsychosocial experience. So there's biological factors that go into it, psychological factors and social factors. And I'm super fascinated by the psychological and social factors involved in pain and how the people around us, such as our families, influence the pain experience um, and, and how things like culture or how we were raised um, can can affect our pain and and how we are functioning day to day. And so those are all common elements in my research. And so the focus of our lab is on understanding mainly pain, but really health in general within the family unit. And the family unit unit could be could be really anything. It could be couples, it could be parents and children. Um, and also we have a heavy focus on just children and adolescents in general. So we work with youth um, and we also work a lot with parents to understand um, their relationships with pain, how that's affecting them in the context of their specific parent-child relationship and in the family. And we have several different studies that have been touching on that area specifically um, within the lab. We have been um, more recently focusing on the area of menstrual pain specifically, which um, the more research I've done and trying to understand adolescent experiences, menstrual pain has really come up as a topic. And actually, it was first something that I became interested during my dissertation research when I was doing that research with couples. A lot of the couples, the female partner would say that things in the couple with their pain were just so much worse when they were having their period and also experiencing period pain because I wasn't looking at period pain specifically. I had partners who had chronic pain in general, but they were saying that the period pain made everything so much worse. And that was the first time my interest was peaked in menstrual pain. And as I shifted into working with younger populations, I really noticed a significant gap in, in research on early menstrual pain experiences, a lack of resources for youth with menstrual pain, and just generally um, not a lot out there to support families who are, are struggling to understand menstrual pain. That's really what we're focused on right now with a lot of our research and we have two grant funded studies um, 
one looking at how premenstrual factors in the sense of pre premenstrual in the sense of individuals who haven't even started menstruating yet affect um, whether or not they go on to be more likely to develop menstrual pain or even have chronic pain. Um, so we're following teens for several years to get an understanding of how, how that trajectory goes. And we're also developing an app to try and create a resource for teens who have menstrual pain. This is all so awesome to hear about. And I love that you're getting so much funding to do this because, as you've said, there is kind of a gap in this area of knowledge right now. And I think we'll probably come back to some more discussions about menstrual pain as we keep going. And I will make sure that I also provide a link in the show notes so that listeners can go to see the lab website, the social media pages as well, so they can see all the different current research that Michelle and her team are doing. But Michelle, as you mentioned, uh, your lab has a number of students who are also doing pain-related research. I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to the importance of mentorship when it comes to helping train researchers in the area of pain, especially as it relates to maybe pain knowledge or just outcomes across the lifespan. I find that mentorship is so key, particularly in the area of pain. Pain affects so many conditions. Um, we see it in so many people, but it's something that that sometimes gets, I don't know, well, not even necessarily pushed to the side, but sometimes you have people researching pain and cancer. Here I am researching pain and menstrual pain. Um, and so everyone kind of gets shifted into their specific area that they might be looking at pain in or their specific side of pain. Maybe they're interested in the biological side. Maybe they're interested in the psychological side. Maybe they're interested in the social side. And I think that's the challenge and the exciting part of pain is that it's just so complex. There's so many different sides to it. But the only way I think we can really make progress is to come together. And I think our trainees really are a way we can we can make that happen because they come in with these bright ideas and they want to look at things that maybe we haven't considered that merge different ideas. And so then we can take on this mentorship role of helping them network, help, help, helping them bring these ideas to life by using our own resources um, to, to provide mentorship. And I think that the pain community of pain researchers and pain clinicians has really um, emphasized mentorship and made it a priority. There's lots of great experiences for trainees um, in the area of pain. And I don't know that pain research would be making the innovations that it is or the um, ideas would be emerging that are emerging if we didn't have those mentorship opportunities for those trainees that are coming in and are are so bright. Absolutely. As a student, I obviously love hearing that because I'm very new to the pain research world as well. And I know that Michelle, with a lot of the projects that she has going on, she also includes uh, participants as a part of the research process. So if you're someone who's maybe not even in university yet, but you are interested in pain research, there are so many opportunities to start to learn about that process, whether you're someone with lived experience or if you're just wanting to learn more. So I'm going to include in the show notes as well, uh, the Center for Patient-Oriented Research here at the University of Saskatchewan, just if anybody wants to learn more about that. But Michelle, because so much of the research you've done to date um, has been focused on younger populations, could you maybe explain 
how the experiences of pediatric or youth pain perhaps is a little bit different compared to older adult populations? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great question. And I, I think that one of the key things is that a child or youth is embedded in their family. And, and so their pain is not just experienced by them. Um, It has an impact on the family as a whole in terms of how the parents are coping with it or, or whether what they're saying in response to pain or knowing how to seek resources and get the help that the child needs. It, um, it is pain can really take over life and functioning. Um, and so that would have an impact on siblings. The child who has the pain um, might have more challenges in school settings or with friends than, than a child without pain. And I think that, you know, the different areas just and, and individuals, because of the way that children are embedded in different systems um, occurs, I think that that is one of the differences that you really notice in younger populations is that there's just so many roots um, or so many places where pain is having an impact. But on the flip side, that also creates avenues for looking at options or, or ways to help with pain or make something better in one area. And all of that isn't to say that, you know, adults aren't embedded in a system. They're part of families too often or pain affects their workplace. But I think it's there's something a little bit unique about the child and the way that they um, they often come with a family who is also just really being affected by the individual in pain. Yeah, pain being embedded in the family. Like I love that statement that you made there because that is such an important piece. And even just the idea when you're a young person and maybe you don't have the full vocabulary to explain like what types of sensations are happening in your body. Um, that makes things like assessment so much more difficult. So again, just so much more work and research that needs to be done in that area. And thinking back to the family more generally, I'm thinking about how you mentioned before that some of the women um, in the couples you were previously doing research with would often talk about that menstrual pain. And I've seen studies showing that pain sensations can actually be heightened if there are stressful interpersonal dynamics in the family, but they can also be improved or alleviated when there is that positive social support environment. So again, just really cool to see the interaction between the psychological and the social and just how important it is to be surrounded by good people whenever you can, who can help you. However, If we are thinking about the future of pain research across any institution, where would you like to see pain care or management go from here? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's there's so many places for improvement and and so many directions we could go. Um, One thing that really stands out to me uh, that that really comes from my current research in the area of menstrual pain is that there continues to be so much dismissal or normalization of women's pain experiences, things that are considered quote unquote normal or typical, you know, part of life, like a period or labor pain or all of those things that typically females go through um, where they would have pain. And we, we get this 
data from teens or they answer questions for us about what has been difficult when they've been trying to seek treatment for their menstrual pain. And time and time again, still in this day and age, we hear them say, well, my doctor said I just had to learn how to deal with it, or my doctor wouldn't look further into it and said that it was normal. And now that person is an adult and has um, a diagnosis, this pain that they experienced throughout childhood or adolescence really had a significant impact on them. And it's it's just really so heartbreaking that um, largely girls and women are having to advocate so hard on an individual basis just to get um, the proper attention brought to their pain. So, you know, decreasing the I'll use the word discrimination that's still happening in healthcare around pain related to female issues is something I would really like more attention brought to. I actually think social media has helped with this. You see a lot of those posts going around um, in the last little bit about IUD insertion and pain and not being offered anything for pain. And I think that has really got a lot of traction. And, and so that's really helpful. We need to keep pushing those messages that um, there is pain, it shouldn't be ignored. And we need to find ways to not just normalize um, these things and say, well, you just have to deal with it because it's part of life. That totally makes sense. And I love that suggestion to focus on making sure we don't normalize pain. And this is something we've really talked about with uh, patient advocates like Tiara, who we interviewed in an earlier episode about living with endometriosis and Jessica, who talked about her experience of the normalization of pain. So feel free to go back and revisit those episodes as if this is resonating with you, but particularly in our episode with Juliet Sargent, which I believe is episode nine, Juliet is a physiotherapist who specializes in pelvic pain And we also discussed that component that culturally, we are sometimes told that certain types of pain are totally normal, not a big deal. And I think about when I was a youth and I was taught that severe cramping and pain during my period was a normal experience um, just because I was simply someone with female reproductive organs and I was dismissed repeatedly. But as more research is coming out and the more that we are learning that this shouldn't be a typical experience and that there are things you can do to improve your menstrual cycle, Um, you know, that proper assessment becomes so necessary to ensure things like endometriosis aren't present or pelvic congestion syndrome, just to ensure that these aren't at the root pain experience. Because if this has been your entire teenage life dealing with those pains, and then you're into adulthood, like how much have you potentially missed out on because you didn't get the care and attention that you needed. So it's really awesome to know that there are folks like you in our province that are helping learn more about this in different populations with that specific focus on the youth perspective, which is so preventative. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, Can I just jump in and add that there is more and more research showing that Um, Well, we know that early pain experiences go on to affect pain experiences across the lifespan, but there's more research coming out showing that menstrual pain experiences can lead to higher risk for chronic pain and pain in adulthood. So even if it is normal or something that is typical, 
we're putting people at risk when we normalize this and say it's not a big deal of going on to experience later chronic pain. So it shouldn't be dismissed. We know the cost of chronic pain on economic factors and on individual and health-related factors. So there, the the impact of this untreated pain and all those things you just mentioned doesn't just stop once there's a diagnosis for that individual. It can have a lifelong impact on their pain. Absolutely. And I'm going to see if we can find even a reference for that uh, specifically. So if anybody wants to read more about it, um, especially perhaps care providers, because we know not just in this province, but nationally, internationally, pain education is still so limited um, for a lot of care providers unless they really seek that out. So anything that we can do to help provide education and any form of empowerment to patients, that's what these podcasts are all about. So thank you for bringing that up, Michelle. Is there anything else you would like to mention today that we haven't discussed so far? Oh, well, I mean, I'm always looking for research participants, so I'll take a moment to plug our research. Um, we currently are recruiting teens who might be interested in participating in an online six-week mindfulness study. Uh, one of my graduate students is piloting this study that um, is looking at mindfulness, a mindfulness program that was previously developed at the hospital for sick children by um, Dr. Danielle Reskin. And we're, we want to try it here with menstrual pain because it was, it was used for chronic pain and we want to see if we can help teens with menstrual pain. Um, so it's six weeks online using Zoom. And uh, my grad student, Kayla Wall, is running that. We're also looking for people to, to look at the first version of our app prototype, which we're super excited about. And now we want um, uh, we, we want some teens to come and, and tell us if we've sort of hit the mark with our prototype. Is it something that they like, something they think they would use and to give us some feedback. So any teen that might be interested in looking at versions of pictures of an app to give us their opinion would be welcome to participate in that study. And uh, the last study is, I, I mentioned it already, where we're tracking youth who haven't started menstruating um, so that we can follow them when they do start menstruating. And we need, um, so individuals 10 to 13 who um, have had zero to three periods. So we'll accept individuals in the study who um, have really just, just started menstruating um, and a parent to um, work with us to follow to complete some questionnaires over a number of years so that we can see what is happening with these youth and their pain. Those all sound like incredible studies and I love that they are happening here in our province because I feel like there's going to be some seriously groundbreaking data coming from it and I know I'm a broken record on the podcast where I am a huge fan of the curable app for dealing with chronic pain so the idea that there's going to be something for youth and specifically menstrual pain, um, that study specifically, I am super excited about, but I'm also going to include uh, some more links so that people can take a look at some of the other studies that are happening and if you want to get involved. So Michelle, before I let you go, since we're nearing the end of the episode quickly, we did have some mention here about culture and family, obviously, but I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit more to these social factors in the pain experience. Yeah, for sure. So I think a great 
Wait, well, there's a couple different examples, but I'll, I'll use this one. Imagine you're walking in a really busy place, like a mall or a university, or, you know, you're at school. Um, you're, imagine you're walking down a staircase and you trip and you fall and you really hurt yourself. Depending on, on how you want those around you to respond to you, you might pretend that you're totally fine, hop on up and and say, oh, I'm okay, everything's fine, even though you're not entirely sure you're going to be able to walk home from there. Or you might um, make a big deal of it and say, oh, I'm really not okay, I need some help, someone, someone please help me. So, you know, the way we act when we are in pain um, is obviously influenced by our pain and the degree of pain we're in, but it's also influenced by who's around us and what message we want to um, to communicate to those people. And it all comes back to the idea that pain is a social experience. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, whenever we experience pain, we have uh, different ways of expressing that pain that are communicating a message to the people around us. The things we say, the faces we make, or the grimaces we make, some of these are automatic, but some of these are things that are cognitively mediated, which means we have some control over them. And so the individual in pain is one side of the equation, but the way that the people respond repeatedly when you are sending these pain messages is the other side of the equation. So if you experience pain and someone is extremely dismissing, you probably won't feel comfortable bringing that pain up to them again. It's kind of that situation with um, females in doctor's offices. You get told that your pain is nothing enough times. You start to not bring it up anymore. Or you might say your pain is, you know, you might have to, I don't want to use the word exaggerate, but, you know, really put emphasis on your pain so that someone, anyone takes you seriously. So pain always has a communicative purpose. You know, if if you're alone, you show your pain differently than when you're around people. And who you're around affects um, the way you show your pain as well. If it's a friend, you might show some your pain in one way. If it's a parent or a teacher or a boss, you might show your pain in another way. That was such an amazing way to illustrate that. And it, it gave me such a better picture on, you know, that understanding of how we can be even just conditioned socially based on how people are responding to us. And I think, you know, it's making me think of some research experiences I've had where we've spoken to people and that dismissive attitude they get from care providers where they said, oh, well, like, you're not acting like you're in extreme pain. And the amount of times I've heard, particularly women say they had to over-exaggerate their experience to be taken seriously. It shouldn't be like that. And it's just, it's a very interesting thing for everybody to keep in mind and look into further. But since we are just about out of time here, and since this is a Saskatchewan-based podcast, Michelle, would you be willing to tell us about one of your favorite things about living in the province or maybe just a favorite place you like to go? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I'm a prairie girl at heart. I was born and raised here, uh, but I have lived elsewhere. And there's something about the prairie landscape that is so calming and soothing to me. I, you know, I love the mountains. I love the ocean. 
But when I get to come back to the prairies, I find it soothing to finally be able to see in the distance and have that open space and that contrast between the golden fields and and the blue sky always brings me a little bit of joy. I love hearing that. And I think if we did a survey on all the responses that we got from almost everyone on the podcast, I think almost every single person has mentioned like how beautiful and wonderful the open landscape is, which probably speaks to why our license plates say what they do, which is land (laughs) of the living skies, if you're not from Saskatchewan and not familiar. But Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. And I learned so much. I'm sure our listeners will have as well. And we're going to include a bunch of links so that we can provide some more education and resources for everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. As mentioned during the podcast, we have included some links in the show notes specifically a journal publication about menstrual pain leading to chronic pain. We've got links to the Family Health Lab where you can see their current research and some of the studies they are actively recruiting for, as well as the Saskatchewan Center for Patient-Oriented Research, sometimes called SKIPPER, if you want to find ways to get involved as a patient partner, or perhaps you are a clinician or researcher who wants help recruiting patient advisors for your studies. Make sure you don't miss that. Again, thank you to Michelle for her time today and all the knowledge she shared with us. As a note, this is our second last episode before the end of season one. We have one more final episode with Dr. Anita Chakravarti coming out soon, but we hope you've been enjoying listening along so far this past year. Thank you for listening to Your Partners in Pain, a podcast for people experiencing pain and those who help individuals living with pain. Funding for this podcast was provided by the Saskatchewan Community Initiatives Fund and the Saskatchewan Pain Society. For more information about our organization or to find additional resources, please find us on social media at SaskPain or visit our official website, www.saskpain.ca.